Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Cressy of 1346. In the last episode I spoke of how King Edward III of England initiated conflict with King Philip VI of France, and I described the opening battle of the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Slaus in 1340, which was a resounding victory for the English. After the Battle of Slaus, the character of Edward III's war effort changed. The king dropped the old strategy, traditional since the time of King John, of alliance building in the northwest of France and invading from the southwest. Relying on paid allies had proved expensive and ineffectual as they were only ever reliable while the cash was flowing. So Edward instead concentrated efforts on his closer political allies on the continent, namely the pro-English factions in Brittany and in Flanders. As he departed the Isle of Wight with his army in 1346, Edward had a number of possible options open to him. He could have landed in Flanders, where since the Battle of Slough the inhabitants had stayed loyal to the English, or in Aquitaine, where Henry of Lancaster was fighting the cause against the French, or in Brittany to join the de Montfort allies. In all, all of these locations, friendly troops could have ensured an unopposed landing and a secure base from which to advance. Instead, Edward chose Normandy, a region once part of his ancestors' Angevin Empire, but now firmly in French control. The decision had the advantage of taking the enemy by surprise. King Philip had expected the English to enter France via Aquitaine, and so had stationed most of his troops there. Perhaps Edward may have also hoped to disperse French troops, yet more widely by opening up a new front. Added to that, the fertile Norman country, with the harvest just in, would provide plenty of provisions. Edward embarked upon a chevauchée, that is, a mounted force moving rapidly through enemy territory, doing as much damage as possible. The purpose was partly to damage the local economy and so reduce the amount of tax that could be levied. But in addition, the terror it brought was intended to persuade the population to change their allegiance. A crucial basis of any ruler's legitimacy was their ability to be able to defend and protect their people. King Philip's reputation and honour could be severely damaged if he failed on this. As well as the knights and men-at-arms, Edward brought along a large contingent of archers. There were also engineers, miners, clerks and servants, many of them pressed into compulsory service, whipped up by royal propaganda, denouncing the French as aggressors who wished to invade England and to incite the Scots to invade the North. The English army marched through the countryside, terrorising locals, the vanguard nominally led by Edward's 16-year-old son, Edward, Prince of Wales. He did not intend to get delayed besieging any towns, as he would then lose the manoeuvrability to help choose the best site to meet the French army in battle. 
The English army landed ashore on the Sherbrooke Peninsula on the 18th of July. They set off southbound, but already the next day were held up at the River Douvre, where the locals had destroyed the only bridge. The river was shallow enough for infantry and cavalry to cross, but not the baggage train of wheeled vehicles, which carried the tents, provisions and accumulated loot. Edward's engineers rebuilt the bridge overnight and continued on. On the way they burnt down the towns of Canton and Saint-Loup, but spared Bayeux, who were quick to pledge their allegiance to the English. By the 25th of July, the army had already covered an impressive 90 miles and were approaching the city of Caen, a city far bigger than any in England except London. Its once formidable fortifications had been allowed to fall into a state of disrepair and in some places were falling down. As Edward manoeuvred his troops into position, the English archers and men-at-arms, eager for plunder, preempted his orders. They rushed the bridges before the assault force was fully in place and dived into a furious melee on the far side. Meanwhile, teams of English longbowmen and Welsh lancers waded across the shrunken river, while others found boats which had not been removed during the hasty relocation of the French at the start of the action. The French force was stretched too thin, attempting to defend the whole riverbank, and broke at several points. The English swarmed into the city and began killing anyone they met, soldier or civilian. The fighting was particularly brutal in the narrow streets and inside houses. French knights, conspicuous by their armour and rich trappings, sought out an English knight to surrender to, knowing that only then would their lives be assured. The rest of the French forces were cut down as they ran. During their stay at Caen, the English discovered a written proclamation from the French king ordering Norman raiding parties to despoil the southern coast of England. The fine was used by recruiting parties in England for some years to come to stoke up anti-French feeling. After five days, the army was ready to move on. The plan initially was to march to Rouen, the historic city of Normandy, until news arrived that the city was well garrisoned and in any case a vital bridge on the way had been pulled down. Edward decided instead to head for Paris. Edward's hope was that by marching close to the French capital, preferably on the north bank of the River Seine, he would draw Philip to the battlefield of his choosing. As the army now progressed down the Seine Valley, they came across strongly defended towns, but pushed on to avoid delay. King Philip, meanwhile, was staying at Saint-Denis, the burial place of French kings to the north of Paris. In vain he had made a half-hearted attempt to negotiate by offering the county of Pointu and the confiscated parts of Aquitaine, provided that he would hold them as Philip's vassal. When it was clear battle was unavoidable, he sent out orders around France to send all available troops to Paris. Philip tracked Edward's movements, realising that his next target would be Poissy, a major crossing point ten miles to the west of Paris. He evacuated the town and ordered the demolition of its bridge. At this point the English were weary and running out of supplies. Edward realised he did not have the capability to take Paris and instead started planning his return trip. At Poissy he installed himself in a local royal palace and instructed his men to set about repairing the bridge. To buy himself time he sent out raiding parties to ravage the outskirts of Paris, targeting in particular the royal properties which ring the city. Philip offered a pitched battle on a plain four miles south of Paris. 
Instead, Edward's men succeeded in building a makeshift bridge remarkably quickly. They crossed onto the northern shore and headed towards Le Courtois at the mouth of the river Somme to rendezvous with their Flemish allies. The tables had now turned, and Edward was in retreat. Philip had assembled an army far larger than Edward's and was now in pursuit, covering 25 miles a day and catching up fast. It was imperative for the English to cross the river Somme, but the French had destroyed all the bridges. By now, most of Edward's foot soldiers were mounted on captured horses, but the need to forage for food was slowing them down, as was an outbreak of dysentery. In just over six weeks, the English army had covered 400 miles. They were tired, short of provisions, and for the first time began to encounter serious resistance among the locals. Edward was informed of a local ford which could be crossed at low tide, but when he arrived in the late evening, not only were the waters too high, but on the far bank he saw a French contingent, sent by Philip to prevent his crossing. By early morning the waters had receded sufficiently for a force of a hundred men-at-arms, flanked by archers, to wade across. Once the archers began to shoot, gaps appeared in the French ranks, allowing some of the French to reach the shore and hold a narrow bridgehead. More of Edward's soldiers swarmed across and soon routed the enemy. It was not a moment too soon, for at this point the advance guard of the main French army caught up, leading to a fight with the rear of the English forces. Although some supply wagons were lost, Edward's army was able to make the crossing and push on further. The following day, Saturday 26th of August 1346, the English took up position near the village of Cressy on Pointu. The exact site of the battle is not known for sure, but wherever it was, it was well chosen by Edward. He stationed his men on the top of a large slope, an ideal location especially for his archers, the men who would end up deciding the fate of this famous battle. The crucial weapon in the battle would prove to be the longbow. Made of yew wood, either from native English yew or imported from Ireland, Spain or Italy, they approximated in length to the height of the archer. The arrows were mostly made from the wood of the ash tree, with goose feathers to help stabilise their flight. The usual way of employing archers was to put them in large groups and have them shoot volleys at a 45 degree angle, thus obtaining maximum range and ensuring they struck from above. Whilst this might not immediately kill armoured cavalrymen, it would wound them, panic their horses and discourage an enemy charge. The other main innovation of the English was for most of their men-at-arms to fight dismounted. Edward deployed his troops defensively, with two main bodies of Welsh spearmen and dismounted men-at-arms. The Black Prince commanded the front line and the King the rearguard. On either side of the foot soldiers were two blocks of archers. Philip, meanwhile, may have had an army of 25,000 in the field, including large numbers of Genoese mercenaries. He placed his crossbowmen at the front, with two divisions of cavalry behind them and infantry on the flanks. At the beginning of the battle, however, the French were not properly in formation, with elements of the three divisions intermixed in places and out of contact with their commanders. At about four o'clock in the afternoon, battle commenced and the English archers began to fire their volleys. The crossbowmen of Philip's mercenaries responded, but could only manage at half the rate of their opposition, and their arrows fell short of their targets. 
Overcome by the longbowmen, the French were soon in disarray. In addition, the English also introduced a new weapon, the cannon, never before used on a battlefield in France. They were rather primitive devices, then only able to shoot metal pellets in the general direction of the enemy, but they were enough to shock the French. It would have been advisable to have delayed the battle until the troops were all in the right place. In fact, King Philip ordered his army to halt. However, the mounted men-at-arms in his vanguard were impatient and overconfident. They wanted to launch their charge swiftly before someone else could rob them of the glory of battle. The Genoese crossmen, on the other hand, were reluctant to attack. Their weapons had been affected by the rainstorm, and they were tired and disordered after their long march. They were also without their shields behind which they could take cover when reloading, which was stuck with the baggage train. However, their protests were angrily brushed aside. As they advanced, they soon found themselves at a disadvantage compared with the enemy longbowmen due to a combination of damp, having to shoot upwards and having the sun in their eyes. When the English opened fire, they were able to fire several shots in the same time it took the Genoese to reload their crossbows. Blasts of smoke and flame from the English line marked the beginning of the age of gunpowder warfare, but it was archers who caused the most damage. The French knights, angry at the ineffectiveness of the Genoese, barged past their allies, using the weight of their horses and even their weapons to force a way through the crossbowmen. But as the cavalry charged forward, they were met with a deadly hail of missiles. A few French knights reached the enemy front line, and a confused series of melees broke out, but Edward's men-at-arms and spearmen stood firm. Philip hastily sent the rest of his army forward. Despite poor organisation, the French fought bravely, and for two or three hours made repeated assaults. Again and again, the exhausted horses thundered up the slope in the face of the barrage of English arrows. As more and more Frenchmen fell, it became more difficult for the charging men-at-arms to find their way through the numerous dead and wounded men and horses. They were taking such heavy losses, it would have been good sense to abandon the fighting for the day and regroup the next. Perhaps it was their chivalric sense of honour which compelled them to persevere. Among the casualties on the French side was John, Count of Luxembourg, and the King of Bohemia, and for reasons of honour supposedly demanded to go into a thick of battle, even though it meant certain death. His son was also present, but wisely left, while still alive, and later went on to become Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV. The furious battle continued late into the evening. By the time darkness fell, most French knights had either been killed or slipped away. Around midnight, Philip called off the attack, and what remained of the French army retreated under cover of darkness. There was no pursuit. The exhausted English slept where they had fought. They had won a great battle, defeating a force three times their size, and without ever being pushed back from their starting positions. In all, they suffered only about a hundred casualties. The French army, on the other hand, had been destroyed. Not only had about 10,000 foot soldiers perished, but unusually in a medieval battle, a large number of nobles lost their lives. About 1,500 knights, two dukes and four counts, as well as John of Luxembourg. For the English, the Battle of Cressy proved the effectiveness of tactics that would bring many future victories. The French, despite their heavy losses, seemed to learn little from their costly defeat, and for many years repeated the same patterns of failed cavalry attacks against the archer-heavy English armies. 
the reason for this failure to adapt, according to Martin Doherty in the book Battles of the Medieval World, was the culture of France at the time, and the obsession there with social status. Military activity and equipment was restricted to a small social elite, partly in order to reduce the possibility of revolt, and made social control more effective. The infantry were an ill-armed, untrained rabble, who if by some miracle weren't immediately scattered at the first sign of conflict, were liable to be ridden down by their own side, as hot-blooded knights eager to attack saw any delay in charging as an affront to their honour. There was thus little incentive for the French infantrymen to fight well, and even the foreign mercenaries were viewed with suspicion and contempt. This in turn led to further lacklustre performances, which reinforced the view that the only troops with anything on the field were noblemen in armour. The French warrior culture had brought many successes in earlier times when the Normans had swept through Europe and beyond, but now tactics had been found that would neutralise them. The days of the knights were numbered. The English, on the other hand, enjoyed far greater social cohesion, with a small number of men-at-arms supported by a larger number of free men. These men were properly trained and equipped, respected by their commanders and fighting not for pay, pardon or duty, but out of choice. There was a mutual trust between the two groups. Each soldier knew his part, and previous events had shown that if they continued to cooperate, then victory would result. The Battle of Cressy was a landmark moment in European military history. The new, more professional means of recruitment and radically revised field tactics had proved decisive against the full might of the French army. Discipline had won out over sheer courage, planning and tactical skill over martial prowess. News of the English victory was immediately rushed back to London, exploited for its propaganda value. Edward III's position was further strengthened in October, when his men successfully routed a massive Scottish invasion force at Neville's Cross in County Durham. Almost the entire military leadership of Scotland was killed or captured in a single day, including King David II of Scotland, who was taken to London where he was kept prisoner for the next 11 years. The next year, Edward achieved one more significant success in France. After the Battle of Cressy, his men laid siege to the port town of Calais. A small and relatively unimportant town at the time, Calais was chosen for its location, next to the Low Countries, where the English Channel is so narrow that the white cliffs of Dover can be seen from there on a clear day. The English forces may have numbered 26,000, the largest army that would take to the field during the entire history of the Hundred Years' War. The financial demands placed on the England were therefore immense and included several new taxes that caused much grumbling back home. The victory at Cressy, however, had made it easier to persuade the people that it was a cause worth paying for. King Philip of France lacked the confidence to lead a relief army, so after 11 months, in October 1347, the people of Calais capitulated. Their town came to be colonised by numerous English merchants and tradesmen and thereafter became a vital military foothold for the English in northern France. Edward returned home in triumph and celebrated with a series of festivals and tournaments. Then on St George's Day, the 23rd of April, the next year the king founded the Order of the Garter. Edward's motivations went beyond simple enjoyment and indulgence. 
Every Plantagenet king since John in 1205 had been prevented from defending his foreign territories by nobles who strongly resisted the duty to serve abroad. The 26 members of this exclusive new order, selected for their loyalty and bravery in battle, would now lead the armies against the French. Edward's victories in the 1340s had justified the massive expense, effort and deaths incurred fighting in France, but he knew that unless momentum was retained, then resistance against foreign campaigns would soon grow again. The key to the success of the Order of the Garter was that it made foreign service a badge of honour, not some tiresome historical obligation. It gave Edward a mechanism to celebrate and reward knightly chivalry and a means to bind the king to the men who would wage war for him on the continent for decades to come. It was at this moment when the continent of Europe received its biggest shock of the Middle Ages. Sometime in 1347, a terrible sickness arrived in Italy on ships from the east. The Black Death was one of the most devastating pandemics in human history thought to have originated in the plains of Central Asia, where it then travelled along the Silk Road, reaching Crimea in 1343. From there it was most likely carried by fleas living on the black rats that were regular passengers on merchant ships. It peaked between 1347 to 1353, but came back repeatedly in different strains for several decades, and is estimated to have killed 30 to 60% of Europe's total population. The French, already reeling from military defeat without a strong central administration, suffered appallingly. Crops went unharvested, fields untilled, and as the population shrank, so did state revenues. The court and government fled Paris, with Philip wandering around the borders of Normandy with a handful of clerks and personal servants. In England, the effects were less, but still serious, serious enough to prevent any large-scale operations of war. Although hostilities continued to simmer, it would be a few years until the next major battle of the Hundred Years' War. In the next episode, I will move on to the Battle of Poitiers of 1356. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. As always, it would be fantastic to hear from you, maybe on the Facebook page for A History of Europe, Key Battles, or you can write to me directly, carl at historyeurope.net. So I'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks for the Battle of Poitiers. Until then, have a great time and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.